0: Well, welcome to Spark. We are really grateful for the opportunity to be together. And in case you didn't get a chance to read the email with all the details, the state of California who had said, hey, you should totally sign up, because we'll send you a whole bunch of rapid tests that you can do as people walk in, also emailed this week. And like, yeah, so uh, we are running out. Um, and it'll be a slight delay. So we'll just keep you posted on that, but in the meantime, um, we'll continue to offer all of our offerings, and we have the wristbands there to let everybody know what you're comfortable with, so green, yellow, or red, and then we have the physical options for green, yellow, and red, right? Like if, you, if you're red, then you're in the Zoom, which is awesome, and if you're yellow, you can be outside, and if you're green, you can you're here or maybe you might do all three. You can write all three wristbands depending upon who's next to you. I don't wanna hug you, but I'll fist bump you. You can figure it out, people will get a clue. And then as soon as weather is better, just for, I know a lot of our families have kiddos under the age of five who are not yet vaccinated and they're trying to navigate all of those um, places of risk and exposures and all those kinds of things. Uh, We will, as soon as we can, be back outside in the yard, but it's cold and dark still for a little while longer. So um, so we'll still be inside and doing our, what Kevin's referring to as the Trinity um, experience. Um, so <laughs> whether you're in the Zoom or in the room or, or outside. So we'll continue to do all of that. And we are so grateful for your input and your continued partnership in that. And we'd also continue to covet your prayers as Spark in the middle of pandemic does look for more permanent um, space that we can be in, not changing worship space on Sunday but, but finding additional space in the, in the week and those decisions will hopefully be coming forward um, in the next um, few days to a couple of weeks so just keep praying that um, God will lead us where God wants us and that God's provision will be there for all of us and if you have any questions about that you can come and talk to me but there's nothing really to say yet. As soon as there's something to say I will definitely tell you because I'll be super excited about it All right, let's pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for the opportunity to come together to worship Jesus, um, to worship you, to be with you, um, to be in your presence. Uh, Jesus, we are grateful for the opportunity to be in this community, to continue to worship you through protest and demonstration today in Palo Alto through our acts of service, through the ways in which we love our friends and our family and our coworkers, to the ways in which we care for the environment and seek to find ways um, to do new and beautiful things for you in this world, um, to the ways in which our hearts break for those suffering and experiencing tragedy even today. Jesus, we are grateful that we can come together in all of those moments of deep, great goodness and hope, and of despair, and that we can see you in the love and care of one another. So Jesus, we ask right now that as we turn our hearts to you through the worship and study of your word, that you would meet us here, that you would give us eyes that see and ears that hear and hearts that are moved and shifted and changed, and and that through everything, God, we would be drawn closer to you and to one another through our study. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. All right, we are starting a new series at Spark called the Wisdom Series, which already feels very daunting because then it's like you have to expect wisdom to come from it, and that may or may not be the case. Um, The wisdom, groups of wisdom, like the books that we'll be looking at specifically are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. Not all tonight, just going to do a little bit of one of them tonight. Um, beginning in the 3rd century CE, um, after the time of the early church Origen, and early church father was already referring to Proverbs and Ecclesiastes as Solomonic philosophical corpus. And he left out Job, likely due to the fact that it was a narrative genre and didn't have very specific like, directions towards actions. In fact, Job is full of poetry. Um, but early on, this idea of having wisdom or advice in our text um, is prevalent right away, and these particular verses land a little bit different, in, these particular books land a little bit different in our canon than other books do. A lot of other books we can say, ah, this book is about how the people of Israel were given a covenant, or this book is about how the people of Israel did or did not follow that covenant, and this book is about how this prophet was really mad that they did or did not follow that covenant, Um, and this is how they lived in the world. But when we start to get to books of wisdom, the genre is a bit different, and there's a lot of poetry in it, Um, there's a lot of imagery and metaphors, and we're going to be looking tonight at the book of Job um, to kind of start in with. If you haven't read the book of Job, it's not quite in the middle of your text, but if you ever did that thing as a kid where you were like, I really need God to speak to me, and then you'd like close your eyes and open up your Bible, um, and then put your finger down, and then you found yourself in Job, um, that was possible, or the Psalms, right, and then it'd be like, destroy my enemies." Oh, Lord. Like, no, I, that's, I, and then you close it and do it again. Like the magic eight ball, right? Will it snow this week, Lord? And then, yeah. Um, so the book of Job, if you're looking for it in your Bible and you want to read along, either online or in your book, um, it's about right in the middle and then just to the left a little bit. It is structured like this. Um, it has a chiastic structure. Do you guys know what that means? So it's like, it's, it's cool. There's, there's a lot going on, but it kind of goes big and then in and then big again. It has a center. Uh, The very beginning is the prologue of the book that talks about Job's suffering and loss. And then three of Job's friends show up, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and they dialogue with Job, examining themes of goodness and suffering, reward and punishment. And innocent suffering is questioned, like is that actually possible, whether or not it exists, and how should one act when injustice occurs. And then Elihu, who's the only one with a Hebrew name, and that name means he is my God. Nobody else here has an Israelite or Hebrew of origin name. Um, He shows up, and he has different things to say. He kind of takes the part of God rather than the accusers towards Job. He takes God and defends God a bit. Then towards the end, we have a theophany, uh, where God sort of shows up in the whirlwind and responds. And then we have an epilogue, which includes Job's redemption and restoration. The book of Job consists of a narrative framework with poetry throughout, and it's a sustained theological debate in poetry form, which, you know, that's what we're typically accustomed to, right? Um, It's very unique in our Bible. It's unique in the canon to have something like this and these big types of themes discussed, period, but also discussed in, in poetry. I actually really love this because I think that if you're going to pretend like you can understand and reason suffering in this world you should at least have to rhyme right that's you should at least be really good at poetry to start to figure out or try to argue that you know those things the dating and the location of this book of Job are really hard to sort out. There's no actual physical um, event that's mentioned there that we could track it to. Like we could say, oh, there was the exodus, and so we try to try to navigate that to a particular time. There's a land at the very beginning mentioned, the land of Uz. We don't actually know exactly where that might be. As I mentioned, there's not Israelites specifically in the story. Um, And so all of the dating remains a problem. And opinions range entirely from putting this as the oldest book in our canon to a much more recent book in Hellenistic periods and everything in between. However, Job is mentioned as an ancient hero. He's given as an example of righteousness along with Noah and Daniel in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 14. Now, Ezekiel is a prophet who's very angry and the Babylonian exile is happening. And he says... The, Lord, the word of the Lord comes through Ezekiel and says this, mortal, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it, and break its staff of bread, and send famine upon it, and cut it off from human beings and animals, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job, these three were in it, they would save only their own lives by their righteousness, says the Lord God. So we have an example, at least, of Ezekiel holding up A known character, a known story about this person, Job, as being righteous and as being so righteous that he would maybe be able to at least protect his own life, though not the lives of others. So for all of us just to catch up and get on the same page, the book of Job starts off with a cosmic conversation. Job is here. He's got all of this stuff. He's blameless and upright. He fears God, shuns evil. He has seven sons, three daughters, and he owns 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. I would presume so with that level of livestock. Um, And he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. And so every morning, Job would offer sacrifice just in case somebody, one of his children had had wronged God. And so one day, the angels are coming to present themselves before the Lord and the Satan. And it's got a definite article in the Hebrew, like the accuser shows up and they're there. And the Lord says to Satan, where have you come from? And he answers the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. And the Lord says to him, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God. And Satan's response is, does Job fear you for nothing? Haven't you put a hedge of protection around him, his household, and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands. He's got all of this stuff. But if you stretch out your hand to strike everything he has, he will surely curse you to your face. So the Lord's like, okay, sure, let's let's try that out. Now, immediately, does not anybody have a problem with that? Right? Because you're like, but wait, you just said he's awesome, he's great, he's righteous, he's doing all these things, you've you've spent all this time, Lord, blessing him, and now one guy comes up and he's like, yeah, but I bet, like, push comes to shove, he'd get upset with you. He's like, all right, let's try that out. I mean, none of us would do this to our children, would we? You wouldn't do it. Which leads me to tell you that actually in early interpretation, this was understood as a parable, this whole book. Now, that's not to say that there wasn't maybe an entirely historical person named Job who lived this life and all of this happened to him and that God really did have this conversation with Satan and that all of this was worked out and recorded so that we would have a really good book in our canon and poor Job just became like the worst object lesson ever. But maybe it's okay too if it helps you because some people early on said, I don't really want... To believe in a God who would do this to an innocent righteous man so they say oh this is a parable either way it's okay with me we'll find out someday you will either be sitting next to Job or God will say I was once upon a time have you not heard once upon a time similar to when Jesus would say they would say but who is my neighbor and he would say something along the lines of once upon a time a man was walking down a road right and a Samaritan eventually comes. Like, that is a very true story, although Jesus isn't telling us that actually happened. He's telling us a parable and an example, right? Similar could be here, or again, maybe it actually happened exactly as we're listening to. But just if you have a problem with it, know that you have a good theological out right away. This is a parable, perhaps. So he says, okay, then he goes out from the, Satan goes out from the presence of the Lord. And so one day Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. And they put the servants to the sword. I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he's still speaking, another messenger comes and says, the fire of God fell from the sky, burned up the sheep and the servants. And I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off, and they put servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house and it collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And at this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head, and then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away and the name of the Lord be praised, which is quite an incredible response. And then it says right here in verse 22 of chapter one, in all this Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Pretty incredible. Now, I have to say that I was teaching this to kids years ago because that's what you, do, you teach the book of Job to children. And I was, I actually got assigned this in my early, early youth pastor days at a camp, down in Santa Cruz. And so I was teaching. They wanted me to teach this. I'm like, okay. So I'm trying to teach this to some like elementary school kids. And the kids are like, are you kidding? The children were killed too? They were just at a party and like, they were just, so this little girl goes, this is awful, right? Like, this is so horrible and terrible. I can't believe all this stuff happened. And the kids, right? They're like innocent. He's lost all fame. And I was like, yeah, yeah, but you know, like God restores Job's and Job's fortunes at the end. And and then she goes, but did the children come back? And I was like, right, yet yeah, he did not come back. And she immediately was like, I have detected a massive challenge with this story. So back to, like, my hope that this is a parable. Because um, I was like, well, but he does get family members. She's like, but the same family? Like she, would, like, she could tell she was hearing herself in the story and going, but am I still dead, right? And I was like, yeah, you'd still be dead. So um, so another day then, like Job suffered significantly, but he turns his praise towards God, right? And another day then the angels come to present themselves with the Lord, and Satan also came with him to present himself down. And the Lord said, to "Say, where have you come from? And he answers again, roaming through the earth, going back and forth in it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? I would, if I were Job, I'd be like, shh, don't talk about me anymore. This guy does not need to know where I live um, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he maintains his integrity, though you incited him against me, me against him, to ruin him without any reason. Which also sounds weird, like God, couldn't you have just said no? Or is like peer pressure something God needs to work on fighting against, right? Skin for skin, Satan replies, a man will give you all he give all he has for his own life, but stretch out your hand, strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. So he's like, all right, go ahead. So then Satan afflicts Job with painful sores from the sores of his feet to the top of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery, scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. And his wife said to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? And it says in our English, curse God and die. In the Hebrew, it says, bless God and die. But the translators don't know if you'll catch the sarcasm. So they are helping us with the curse God and die. And so he replies, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we expect, accept good from God and not trouble? And in all this, then again, Job did not sin in what he had said. So when all of this unspeakable tragedy happens, when all of this terrible thing is occurring, his friends hear of this, these three old friends of his, and they decide to show up. They show up and they sit. And don't say a word for seven days. They just sit with him. They see him from a distance. They can hardly recognize him. And they begin to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads, and they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. And no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. And this is where, in part, we can see living out in our text the tradition of sitting Shiva, still found in Jewish communities that thrive today, like the one, the synagogue we're in. That when somebody passes away, the community comes alongside you, and they simply sit with you. They don't talk. They just sit. They might weep with you, but there's just sitting in that grief. And it's a beautiful testimony to solidarity and comfort and concern for those who are suffering. But then after seven days and seven nights, and you guys all know this part, the talking starts. And once the talking starts, um, Job speaks first, and he's trying to figure things out a little bit, and he's like, "I basically, I wish I'd never been born. Why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of the soul for those who long for death that does not come, and you search for it more than hidden treasure who are filled with gladness and rejoice when so it continues on? Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in for sighing comes to me instead of food? And my groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, only turmoil. And then Eliphaz, his friend, says, Hey, are, can, I, can I talk now? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to talk. He goes through this whole thing, and as he's continuing to talk to Job, he starts with, I hope you'll be patient with me. I have some things to say, basically. And they're going to start to ask the question, why do the innocent suffer? And their answer, these three friends, as they talk to Job, is going to be, the innocent don't suffer. You must have done something wrong, Job. That is our only explanation as to why these things have occurred is because you've done something wrong. I don't know if you're familiar with the Bible Project. They put together fantastic videos. And so if you want an overview of Job, you can just go onto YouTube later and type in Job and write the Bible Project and find some fantastic things. And here's a little screenshot from their presentation. And Job's friends show up and their argument is God is just and God runs the world according to justice. So you must have sinned. You've done something, Job, to cause this. You may not know what it is, but you've done something. There's no way that this type of injustice and suffering could befall you if you didn't deserve it. Because God is just. So you must have done something wrong. Has that ever been given to you in the middle of pain and suffering? Something You've done something, and if only we could control your behavior, we could stop this pain and suffering from happening. Now, notice that Job, nor his friends at this point, have any idea that there's been this cosmic setup. We, the reader, know. We know that Job has done nothing. That, in fact, it was his absolute righteousness and faithfulness that made him a target for this. Not any shortcoming or sin. So his friends show up, and they're like, Listen, you've got to have done something wrong. Years ago, um, one of my closest friends, she was dying of cancer. She had gotten cancer young, like 17 years old, and at this point she was about 27, 28 years old. And we were sitting in a booth. She had only one leg at this point, one lung, and an inoperable tumor on her spine. And we're sitting, and she had crutches leaning up. She's super young and beautiful. Like she was on Soul Train. She was on Northern Exposure with a little part, bit part. She's incredible. She helped run the Olympic torch. So people always were talking to her because she's just one of those people that you just attracted to. So we're sitting in this booth, and the waitress comes up and sees the crutches, and they're like, oh, skiing accident. She's like, no, don't, don't feel bad. It's going to be okay, but I have cancer. Like, I'm dying, <laughs> and I, I'm missing a leg. And then, of course, it, ultimately, people feel really bad right away, and they're like, I'm so sorry, and she's like, it's okay. She had a great sense of humor about it. She used to swim in Santa Monica and come out of the ocean shouting shark uh, with the stump, like, super awesome. Right? It was just great, freaking people up. So she was, she was great about it. But inevitably, oftentimes, as we would sit in these different places, somebody would come alongside and say, Have you prayed? have you talked to this pastor? Did you pray this prayer? Did you find this anointing oil? Did you try this particular essential oil? Did you try this diet? Did you try, you know, this particular cure? Or I know a guy who, and did you see this episode of Oprah? All of the things, right? Inevitably, there was some need and desire, well-meaning on the part of any human that was sitting on the other side of that table that always wanted to try to Fix it, find a solution, help it, or find a reason for it. Because it was unreasonable. And I've sat near coffins that are way too small and officiated those funerals. And I'll tell you what I've learned from Job's friends is that I will just sit and weep with you. Because I don't have a good reason for that. And honestly, there's not one reason God could give me that would be good. I did it so people could come to follow me. Eh, find another way. I'm just not, I'm sorry, you could do any other way. It doesn't have to be with the suffering. So Job's friends are showing up and they're trying to find reason. I don't think they're trying to harm him. I think they're trying to understand and find a way to prevent such a thing from befalling them too, right? That's the other thing. When we see somebody suffering, we're like, how do I not have that happen to me? Which is like what we're all glued to the news on constantly right now right in the middle of the pandemic it's always been like well okay that happened to that person but were they vaccinated did they have this did they have that like you just, our first response is how do I prevent that horrible thing from happening to me so one of Job's friends says this think now who was innocent that ever perished he's like there's no such thing right or where were the upright cut off that doesn't happen the upright don't get coughed as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same Job, you must have done something to cause this to happen. And I think we can all agree at this point that they should have stayed silent. Those seven days should have extended for at least a full month period until they needed to go home and see their spouses, right? Job's response to this, by the way, is, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Have windy words no limit. I mean, it's basically like you have flatulence coming out of your mouth. I cannot have you continue. What provokes you that you keep on talking? Can you just shut it? Like, fine, come, sit with me in my misery, weep with me, but stop the talking. It's not helping, and you don't know what you're doing. At which point I'd like to just say that we should probably never use the phrase patience of Job. Because... Job is actually not very patient at all through this whole thing. He is used as an example of suffering patience. James refers to Job as having endurance of Job. He endures his friends. He endures and is patient with their long talks. But endurance and patience truly only describe the beginning and the end of this book for Job. Nine-tenths of the book are vehement protests, anger, and questioning of God's justice. Job is angry and you know what just like his friends are trying to find a reason to the unreasonable they're trying to find some sort of cause for this injustice Job wants answers too and he's constantly saying I'm innocent I did nothing wrong I did not deserve this and ultimately guess what he is right he's the only one right we know from the very beginning of the book. Have you looked at Job? He's innocent. He's righteous. He's doing all. Well. He's like, that's me. I'm that guy. I'm innocent. My suffering is not divine justice. So there's only two conclusions I have. This is where Job's coming from, right? God doesn't want to doesn't run the world according to justice or God is unjust. That's where Job is finding. It. Now, that's a problem too, right? He he's figured it out, he thinks. So Job wants answers, and he cries out in Job 23, verses 3 through 7, Oh, that I knew where I might find God, that I might even come even to God's dwelling. I would lay my case before God and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn what God would answer me and understand what God would say to me. Would God contend with me in the greatness of God's power? No, but God would give heed to me. There an upright person could reason with God, and I should be acquitted forever by my judge. Isn't that such a righteous desire? Oh, but if I could only talk to God face to face and have some understanding. He's not saying that God would do a time machine and change everything. He says, I just need to understand what's happening. But Of course, he doesn't get that answer. He doesn't get it ever. God never pulls Job aside and says, I'm sorry, there was this guy, we had a bet. He never finds out. But he longs and cries out. And I think what's so beautiful about this book being part of our canon, it's so deeply important, is that it gives us constant permission to shout our questions to God, to shake our fists at God, to raise our faces to the heavens and demand an explanation. When we see injustice, when we see pain and suffering, when we see this happening in our lives and the lives of others, this book says you are allowed to ask questions. You are encouraged to ask questions. You, it's okay for you to shout and turn your face to the heavens. I think as though we look at this wisdom series together and we're trying to figure out what is the wisdom found in Job right at the very dead center of the book. In the center of the book is a chapter on wisdom, chapter 28. And Job is here continuing in this discourse, and he says this. Where shall wisdom be found? It's certainly not with the three friends right there hanging out. And where is the place of understanding? Mortals do not know the way to it. It is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. The sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be gotten for gold, and silver cannot be weighed out as its price. God understands. The way to it. And God knows its place. For God looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When God gave to the wind its weight and apportioned out the waters by measure. When God made a decree for the rain and a way for the thunderbolt. Then God sought and declared it. God established it and searched it out. And God said to humankind, truly the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil, that is understanding. God possesses wisdom in the book of Job. Right there, right in the middle of the book, we have this beautiful poem from Job's mouth. That God is establishing and ordering a world that is often disordered by wisdom. And God reveals wisdom to humans. And that's the only way we get it. And this revelation consists of fearing God and shunning evil. In this book, Job pursues God, wrestles with God's hiddenness and wisdom's hiddenness demanding a divine encounter. And Job is repeatedly characterized, even by God, as a God-fearer and an evil shunner. But he cannot find wisdom. He is righteous. He is doing all the right things. And he is saying, where is it? Where can I find it? Where can I find anything to make sense here? And I think this reminds me so much of when you are looking through when a big sunbeam kind of pours through, when light starts to pour through a window and you start to see those dust particles in the air, that when we're in times of darkness, God is not deliberately concealing wisdom from us. But in extreme circumstances, it is harder to see. When the light starts to pour in through the window, then we can start to find it a bit. I just want to say that if you and I are in dark places and difficult times, and we're in times of suffering and injustice and deep pain, it's okay if the wisdom seems far off. It's okay if the presence of God seems not close in these moments. God is there. God is with us in these valleys, in these canyons. It, it is hard to see when those times of suffering are so deep. After 35 chapters then of this kind of dialogue and Elihu showing up and defending God of this kind of debate God shows up. God speaks out of the whirlwind and God has some questions too. These questions are incredibly beautiful. He says this. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? gird up your loins like a man, and I will question you, and you shall declare to me, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? And then God continues for two chapters just asking questions, asking the questions that are displaying the incredible knowledge that God has. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? That it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it. The earth takes shape like clay under a Under his seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. What is the way to the abode of light? And where does darkness reside? And he continues questions like Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you, Here we are? Who endowed the heart with wisdom or gave understanding to the mind? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? And it's really beautiful. It's an incredible settling moment of reminder that that God knows things that we don't, that God is in a world of understanding that we don't have, that we are absent from, and that Job does not know either. After this goes on for some time, for two chapters Job's response is this. See, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I will lay my hand on my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer twice, but I will say no more. And again, maybe wisdom, at least in this book, is knowing when to speak and when not to speak. And Job, in his wisdom, knows now is the time to not speak. And then God continues. Would you discredit my justice? Would you contemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God? And can your voice thunder like his? And then just continues. It's incredibly beautiful poetry. Talking about the world that Job lives in. And the world that we live in today. And how God continues to order it. Um, even when things seem so disordered. When we look at at the ways in which humanity and even our own Bible tries to wrestle with the questions of theodicy, like why do bad things happen to good people. Job is a radical challenge to the doctrine of reward punishment for righteous or sinful behavior. Job says, sometimes bad things happen and it has nothing to do with how you have behaved. This is incredibly different from other passages in our Bible, where we do have lists of blessings and curses. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, it says, do this and you'll live, obey me, and you'll have blessings, rain in the season, rain in the summer, the autumn and the spring, rain, you'll have all these beautiful good things. If you don't do these things, the land will spit you out, right? Terrible thing. There are blessings and there are cursings for our behavior. So we have that. And for sure we know, right, that if we go out and we do any old thing, There are consequences to those behaviors. If I hurt somebody, harm somebody, do something, there's a consequence. Our relationship is broken. There's something negative that comes out. We know that this is true in our world. But Job stands here and says, the answer by the book of Job is really simple. God knows and we don't. It's a simple answer, but with really complex theological ramifications. Doesn't it have that? Yeah. I actually really love this because I find very often that wonderful, incredible followers of Jesus with fantastically... Passionate pursuits of righteousness and discipleship will say things to me like, I think God is so disappointed in me. Or I'm pretty sure I didn't get that job because I made this mistake last week. Or I did this over here and I just want to lean in and say, if God works that way, God is terrible at working that way. Because we'll see in Ecclesiastes and in Proverbs and in Psalms that one of the cries is that the, the wicked flourish. And I bet right now you can think of at least three to four people, like in history, not right here in this room, who are so wicked and never got theirs. So if God's not punishing the most wicked people that we could ever think of who caused massive suffering and millions of deaths, et cetera, then I'm pretty sure the reason why you didn't get that job isn't because you forgot to do your quiet time last week that is a disproportionate response sometimes things don't happen when they should and the loss in our life is because of what did not come sometimes the losses in our life come because of what has happened but job stands here and says we don't have an answer all we can tell you is that god is god and that we are not and I find great comfort in that answer, actually. Job never learns why he's suffered so. He never finds out. And I think that's true for most of us. We, we don't get to know. So here's some wisdom from Job. Are you ready? Find good friends who know when to speak and when to be quiet. And he will sit with you in the suffering and not try to explain it away or find a reason for it. Be a good friend who can do that for others. Feel free to cry out, to rage, to get angry, to shake your fists. God can handle all of that. And seek wisdom and community. God is here. There are There are things to do when things are bad, and we can do them together. Suffering happens, but we are not alone. In fact, suffering and giving meaning to suffering is at the very core of our faith as Christians, isn't it? For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table.